Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to this, the very first edition of the Inside Politics podcast of 2021 from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are political editor Pat Leahy, our health editor Paul Cullen, and I'm delighted to welcome back political analyst and statistician Kevin Cunningham. You're all very welcome, although Paul, not a very happy new year. No, uh, it's Groundhog Day. Uh, and earlier in the year when snow was on the mountains and uh, there is no sight of a uh, lift from lockdown until the end of January, as we we, we all know. Um, It's been an astonishing change of events, really, uh, Hugh. Um, We were best in Europe three weeks ago. We're worst in Europe in terms of the rate at which the virus is spreading here uh, today. The reasons for that are still being debated. Um, There is the added element of this new UK variant and the extent to which that may have played a role. Uh, but certainly centre, front and centre in what happened was uh, mixing and congregating and socialising before and during Christmas. Um, it started uh, in pre-Christmas socialising and it was sealed then by families uh, uniting over Christmas. And that's families with people of all ages. And that's contributed to the rise in hospitalizations and ICU admissions that we've seen, because obviously they, they are usually older people. And uh, they're probably people who uh, picked up the virus around the Christmas table. Now, uh, graphic presentations don't work very well on podcasts, but I have been looking at a lot of graphs over the last 24, 48 hours. And they, you know, a lot of them tell a very, very startling story where the line representing Irish infections, uh, which was kind of moseying along through most of November and December, uh, quite good by comparison with most of our European neighbours, just takes off like a rocket in the in in the last two weeks of December, and it now surpasses most of them. How accurate is that? To what extent are some of those numbers maybe skewed a bit by the fact that we had this backlog of tests which didn't come through the system? I mean, is it quite as bad as those graphs I was looking at are telling me? Well, there there is an ongoing debate about the kind of testing that we use. And uh, I certainly, in considering uh, a particular situation at a time, would be more interested in the number of people who are in hospital and in ICU. And as I mentioned, they are rising pretty sharply. The uh, numbers in hospitals are set to uh, exceed the peak that we saw last March or April uh, around now. And the numbers in ICU have been um, moving upwards, but though not uh, at the same rate. Um, so there are a lot of obviously people who pick up this disease uh, and it's not a serious experience for them, but it doesn't mean that they can't pass it on to other people. So I think that's the, the, the first thing you'd have to say there. Um, but basically, I think we are at a stage where, you know, we, we didn't get low enough in our figures at the start of uh, of uh, December and we didn't know where the cases that we still had were. And then you have Christmas and season, you know, winter weather and indoor living and so on. And you throw that into the mix and possibly this new variant. And when you throw all that into the mix, uh, it's like, uh, you know, setting something on fire, Tinder, and it just erupted. That's not to say that we won't come down off this peak pretty sharply, because one thing we have been able to do 
and this is the third or fourth time we're doing it now, is to put in place a lockdown pretty early uh, and be pretty successful in in, uh, stopping a surge. And this lockdown, we understand we're we're, we're waiting on further announcements later today, but we have a pretty clear idea of what's, what's coming down the line. This will be the strictest one since um, since the measures introduced last March. Yeah, I mean, maybe there might be five kilometre travel instead of two kilometre or something. Uh, there may be some more shops open, hardware might stay open or whatever. Uh, but it's pretty strict. Um, and it's also, I think it's it's, it's also in terms of its impact um, on people whose morale are, is significantly dented uh, with a significant stretch of the winter still to go. And with the key government uh previous promise to keep schools open, um, you know, torn in shreds, really, because that's that's simply not going to happen now um, and reasonably understandably. Um, so, uh, you know, absent the vaccine, the promise uh, uh, offered by the vaccine, we are really back where we were. We started and we're not alone in this. Uh, lots of other countries have been through this. Uh, I suppose the difference here is that there is this in Ireland, there is this um, nerve, extreme nervousness and probably justified one about the ability of the health service to cope. Um, you know, if you look at Germany, I would have considered them, a, a, you know, a reasonable paragon for how to deal with this and get on with uh, the economy and so on. But they've struggled too. But, you know, they're coming off their peak without having, you know, they've had their difficulties in their health service. They've, things have been full, but they haven't been panic stations. And that's what we're always afraid of in Ireland. Is there a further fear at all that... Um Figures over the last couple of days show that the proportion of the uh, current cases, which are ascribed to the what, what's called the UK variant, for want of a better word, uh, has risen up to twenty five percent. I think now they're saying recent recent testing shows. And when this variant became when it became clear that was a problem in in England in the in in early December, uh, the reason it became apparent was because the quite strict lockdown measures which they had imposed in southern England at that point hadn't worked. So is there a fear perhaps that as this variant becomes prevalent or perhaps dominant, that the kind of lockdowns that worked in the past mightn't work as well? Yes, that seems to be the thinking. Uh, it's adding, as everybody knows, to the R number. It's said to be 70% more transmissible. Um, so it changes the calculus and the kind of suite of measures that might have worked. When we, you know, we, we talked at the end of last year about, you know, how level three measures in Ireland would keep things on steady state and level four and five would drive down the virus, that that has to be reassessed and uh, and a new set of measures, um, uh, you know, envisioned. Um, it tilts the bar- argument, you know, there have been, obviously, there have been a group of scientists throughout, throughout this crisis in Ireland saying that we need to aim for zero COVID, we need to suppress the virus. And it tilts the argument a little bit towards them in terms of um, making rolling lockdowns all the more likely, because we haven't found a way out of this, though, to be honest with you, I suppose the, vi- the, the success of the, the incipient success of the vaccines offers one. Pat, can I ask you about the thinking within government on this? Obviously, it's thinking that's changed pretty dramatically over the past uh, over the past two weeks or so, and the government has had to react very pretty quickly. Some people think it should have reacted uh, quicker. Some criticism, including on our own pages of the of the last two days or so of government action, and perhaps a sense that there was a bit of panicking going on. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there was panic um, in government, and the sense I guess. From talking to people in and around government in the past week has been just complete fear uh, of of uh, what is beginning to happen in are obviously is well underway now in hospital accident and emergency units in uh, in ICU and what is to come 
over over the coming weeks. Nobody nobody saw this coming. Uh, I mean, n- not even the gloomiest parts of the most pessimistic wing of uh, of Neffed. Uh, back at the end of November, start of December, when restrictions from the second lockdown were being eased, suggested that we could be looking at a situation where we were we had several thousand new cases uh, a, a day, several hundred, yes, but several thousand is beyond uh, the expectations of anyone, and I think that has hit rolled over rolled over government like a like a tsunami really i mean the political consequences are of course you know less important than the real world consequences for people's health for 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 their lives but i think that such as they are the consequences for uh for the government depend on two things one is what happens in the next week or two uh, in the hospitals and in the ICUs, there is a risk that they're completely uh, overwhelmed. My guess perhaps is that the contingency measures that have been rapidly, that were put in place last March and April and are are being rapidly revisited might be sufficient to uh, uh, to cater for this uh, this surge, but I guess we just uh, we just don't know uh, at this stage. So that, in effect, is kind of out of the government's hands. Uh, almost, uh, it's already in train. But the second thing that um, I, I I think will have a significant effect on the con- political consequences for the government uh, is in the government's control, and that is the rollout of the vaccine. Now, to some degree, they are constrained by supplies from Europe. But as Paul has written in the paper in recent days, uh, you know, it is probably too early to make a judgment on this, but the beginning of the rollout has not been encouraging the numbers that are reaching patients or or the numbers of vaccines that are being, uh, vaccinations that are being performed is, uh, is, is, is really quite low. And just as the government has I suppose benefited by comparison with the mismanagement of the pandemic in our nearest neighbour. Uh, they will suffer from the comparison of what looks like a, a pretty prompt rollout of vaccines in uh, in in the UK. I'll come to Kevin in a moment, but just back to you, Paul, on on that for a moment. Michael McDool has a opinion column in the Irish Times this morning, and he talks about how, on one level, the implementation of lockdowns uh, is a relatively straightforward hammer, which is a metaphor which is often used for it, for a government to uh, to implement. But that something like the rollout of the biggest vaccination programme in the history of the state is more complex. Uh, it's a, a greater feat of, I suppose, state engineering. Um, and therefore, there are more pitfalls involved there. Um I, I get a sense that you've been careful not to be overcritical because it's such early days at the moment, but there is a general sense of concern out there about the ability of the state to do this as quickly, as effectively as, as it should be to save as many lives as it can. Yeah, perhaps that's based on just some of the early evidence. I mean, even the minister seemed to be a bit unclear at the, between Christmas and the year how many how many doses of the vaccine, the first vaccine he was going to get um, when we were starting. Um yeah, I mean, we do vaccination programs. We, we do them well. We get high uptake. Um, and even when the uptake drops, as with HPV a few years ago, we get it back up again. 
Um, we have the staff and the experience and, um, you know, the the public buy-in generally. So it, it isn't rocket science in that way. We are constrained by external factors, one being tied into the EU um, system, uh, which has been uh, cautious in its uh, authorization of new vaccines and cautious in its negotiation negotiating approach with the drug firms uh, so that we've ended up at the moment, although that's probably going to change now, but with just one vaccine, that uh, you know, one egg in our basket as such, um, and an expensive one at that, and everybody else is looking for it too. So that's why we've been uh, a bit slow to, 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 to get. There's nothing you can do about that, really. It does give us time to get things right, I suppose. Um, you know, some scientists say that 90% of the lethality of this disease will be gone by March if we get all the healthcare workers and the care home residents uh, vaccinated. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, there are a lot of uncertainties after that. We, For example, you know, we don't know if uh, the vaccines will stop people passing on on the disease. Um, the, uh, we don't know the dura- duration of uh, efficacy for the, for the different products. But um, certainly um, we will start seeing an improvement, in, you know, regardless of whether we move fast or slow. But I think there's also an economic issue here as well. I think uh, I think in 12 months time, I think we will be looking back on this as as recent history. But those 12 months can make a big difference to the functioning of the Irish state and whether we can maintain a reasonably good economic record in recent years or whether we go into some sort of trough like we did a decade ago. Can I ask you in relation to, I mean, there's some reference there to the, the, the zero COVID advocates. And I was listening to, to one of those on, on RT at the weekend who was essentially saying that we could have two or perhaps three more of these sorts of lockdowns over the course of, of 2021. And I know that there's a certain amount of uncertainty about how quickly the, the, the vaccine will be rolled out. But most of the figures I've seen indicate that, as you say, by March, maybe April, um, the most high risk parts of the population will have been vaccinated and they account for really the vast majority of fatalities at least. And so that we can reasonably expect that fatalities will reduce enormously. Now, of course, there are questions about you don't, you know, about not letting the the disease spread rampantly among the rest of the population. But there are probably a, a different set of calculations that you might be making about reducing to level two or level one or whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I very well recall um, one Sunday in April, I think it was, uh, when I received a, a research paper for an Irish-based scientist in, in London. Uh, and she had modelled that we would be repe- uh, facing repeated waves of this virus. And I chuckled away thinking this was hilarious, but but worth it. And we made a, a front page on a, on a maybe quieter Monday morning thinking that this is never going to happen. And of course, uh, her worst predictions have been uh, born true. Um, so yes, that is the that is the model that that has been shown to be the case. Um, you're right. Once once the people who are most at risk uh, from dying from this disease are removed from the equation, then there is a different uh, calculus to be made. Um, one that tilts more towards. Um, you know, particularly if, if we're sure that our health service can can cope. And as I said, we have more questions to ask on that than some other countries. Um, but once that happens, then I think you really have to say, OK, um, are we ready to reopen schools or um, uh, parts of the economy that have been closed? Um, and I think that will be there will still be ethical issues out there about the exposure of 
people who have are either known to be vulnerable or don't even know that they are vulnerable to this disease. But, um, you know, that then start, it, perhaps it starts falling into the realm of how we treat a lot of other diseases, you know, whether it be hepatitis or tuberculosis or all the other uh, risks that we face in life. And it becomes a bit more quotidian than this uh, extraordinary event has been. Just to, just to finish, you mentioned that the, the zero COVID people um, and their view is basically that we probably need to lock down until Patrick's Day to get numbers down uh, sufficiently. Um, that's not something that obviously the politicians want to be telling people, but um, that is, you know, at the end of January, we, we are going to be facing, or maybe later, we are going to be facing yet another fork in the road when we have to decide what, we, what we're going to, to do, uh, especially if we don't seem to be able to hold this disease in some sort of steady state. Yeah, I'll come back to Pat in a minute about that question of, of timeframes. But Kevin, you've been waiting very patiently there. You've done a lot of interesting work about the the politics of this in terms of the political support, the views of different parts of the population. And there's been a lot of argy-bargy I've noticed myself on social media over the last over the last few days about uh, a lot of hindsight 2020 stuff going on about how correct or wrong the decision to move out of level five at the end of November was now that we know what we what we know now. And also some some suggestions that the that the government did that without popular support. What do we know, if we, or do we know anything, about what the view of the public was then and what it is now on how strict restrictions should be? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a little bit of a, a misconception, I think, that'll please probably neither side in this in this debate as to who was to blame after the fact, obviously, about whether the public wanted in relation to COVID in October, in particular, you know, when 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 decisions were made to close and then in November when decisions were make, made to uh, to reopen. But it is it is true that a large majority of 72%, according to the CSO and, and uh, similar figures in Ireland thinks, and then also other polling companies have very similar figures, about level five, that when level five was introduced, they, there was broad support for that when that was in place. It's It's also true, though, that when the relaxation of restrictions was announced in, in late November, uh, that was also deemed appropriate. There was actually quite a large support for that as well, particularly indoor dining, um, you know, when as people, whether they had thought that had gone too far or not far enough or whether that was about right, you know, those that thought it was, had not gone far enough, plus those that thought it was about right, again, was around 73%. And it may seem counterintuitive to think, uh, how can all these how can the, the public uh, switch so so significantly? But I think a lot of this comes down to um, a significant section of the public, essentially, that will tend to compliantly follow what it perceives to be the government advice of the day, whatever that advice may be. Now, that's not uh, suggesting they're particularly naive or anything. There's obviously sensible reasons for that as well. You know, there's a, there's a sensible uh, proportion of people that might not be confident about their own estimates and might kind of trust, naturally enough, the government or Neffet or some combination of the two in relation to what is the appropriate thing. And, uh, you know, some of this, this is also why, you know, in the government's own data uh, from Amorok, you'll see this kind of static figure of a, a large proportion of people who think whatever the measures are that are appropriate, even as the measures change quite significantly over time. So so I think that's a, it's a very important thing. And, and, you know, we've done a kind of a cluster analysis thing, which is 
it's a sort of a technique to to try to identify uh, groups of voters in society according to uh, kind of people who have similar responses to one another along the same lines. And these types of people are typically older, typically vote uh, Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Um, and, you know, naturally enough, it's, as I said, it's an understandable position essentially to trust the institutions. Um, you know, it's something you can often think of also uh, in any political context um, in terms of party ID, you know, just thinking as a political scientist as well, um, which is an idea that you'll follow whatever your party says because it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a predictable thing to do. You know, why... You know, in spite of all the hype in relation to Donald Trump, you know, 85% of his voters had voted for Mitt Romney, someone with a completely different worldview. There's a kind of a party idea. I'm not suggesting all these people in Ireland are Republicans or Conservative or anything like that in that respect. You know, this is just a, a feature, I think, of politics where, you know, political issues emerge, but... Um, if the government takes a position, lots of people will rightly, to some extent, trust that government's position, I think. But but then in relation to that, the kind of the 70% figure is larger than just older voters or just Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil supporters. Isn't there in relation to this also a kind of an element, to be honest, I'd have a bit of this myself, which is a kind of an Occam's razor answer. I'm not a qualified epidemiologist. I don't have the scientific know-how. At some point, uh, the best thing for me to do in the absence of any clear evidence to the contrary is to go along with the best expert opinion available. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and when I say that 70%, I'm sort of including that group, which, uh, you know, there's a group which I can think of, of as kind of those that are tired of COVID. Uh, I think we're probably all tired of COVID in some respect, but people who kind of want uh, more relaxed restrictions uh, in general, uh, who who don't necessarily support the two parties. In fact, a lot of them would support uh, Sinn Féin in particular. But yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's to some extent quite a reasonable position. I think... Uh, in relation to that that debate of of whose fault it was, I think it's it's a little bit more muddled because at the end of the day, as as, as Paul alluded to, uh, the the Christmas episode is probably the the bigger thing, really. I think to some extent, you know, um, with over a thousand sort of pre symptomatic cases, the real decision perhaps was whether or not the government would, you know, in commas, cancel Christmas, which is a huge political call and I think it's something that neither the opposition uh, nor even Neffet to some extent were willing to kind of approach either so I think it's it's within that context that that was probably the the bigger decision to make whether to you know when we were we knew we were moving to level five by you know December 22nd and it would have taken uh, quite a lot of political leadership which is at the end of the day which drives some of that kind of middle ground to say to people right we're not going to have, you know, three households visiting one another, even when we have all these pre-symptomatic cases. I think that's that was the that was the big decision to make. Now, obviously, said against that, there is uh, rising an important concern about mental health. You know, one of the other things the opinion polls show is that you know quite a large proportion of the of the public have observed their mental health deteriorating over the last uh, year even 6 months is is the is the question that i put to people which was you know from march almost until november or so um and that was particularly the case among younger people so there's there's an understandable you know anticipation of christmas and cancelling christmas and the impact that that might have perhaps though uh there was other evidence that might have shown that actually you know, the notion of cancelling Christmas uh, as opposed to a lockdown might have actually been 
uh, possible. Um, you know, the, the polls also show that, you know, when faced with that trade-off, uh, although some might find it surprising, that a slight majority, you know, and this is again the same poll that showed so many people in favour of indoor dining, a slight majority were in favour of restrictions at Christmas over you know, the idea of a subsequent lockdown uh, in January, as easy as the lockdown in January is, is easy to do because people are, people are kind of adhering to restrictions and we can see the R numbers already uh, starting to decline it already. But that's the kind of, I think that's an interesting question because it, it comes back to the politics of uh, to what extent um, are the politicians on top of what the voters think and where is that trade-off in terms of um, to what extent can Michal Martin, uh, or indeed as Leo Radker did uh, earlier in March, lead the public towards um, the sensible conclusion? Now, obviously, the government has made uh, significant decisions in the last 24 hours in relation to, you know, uh, travel to the country and, and, and schools, which have, which have radically changed things. Um, but I guess the question was for me whether whether they could have made some of those decisions earlier, which would have been difficult decisions, no doubt. Um, but I think actually they were possible. You know, I think it was possible to do it. Yeah, I think um, I think that it is reasonable to ask questions of how quick the government responded to uh, to the the growth in cases from mid December on. Now, you know, government was certainly signalling um, a bringing forward of the restrictions from before Christmas. But uh, I think it's reasonable to ask why that wasn't done, you know, even uh, a week earlier, because we had seen in mid-December, according to the department's own research, the research which signalled, uh, I, as, as, as Kevin said, a couple of weeks earlier, broad agreement with the government's position, which was not just that there was, should be a lockdown in November, but that the lockdown should end at the, uh, at the start of, De- uh, at the start of December. But that research shows what we've seen on a number of occasions since the pandemic started in this sort of interplay in public opinion between I know caution and boldness or lockdown and loosening, whatever you want to call it, where the numbers of people who believe uh, if if you've tracked the two lines of, you know, caution and boldness, if you like, and they uh, and they cross one another. And we've seen that. That is to say that, you know, more people start believing that more restrictions are uh, are necessary than fewer restrictions are uh, are necessary. And that. Um, and that change in public opinion, which had happened in the middle of summer before the second lockdown, which had happened again then uh, just after the uh, after the second lockdown, when people began to become more optimistic, again the sense that the uh, that the the virus was under control. Again, those two lines crossed one another in the middle of December, and put that in plain language, it meant that people realised. That, uh, that people realised that the virus was on the march again, probably from what they were seeing in their own daily lives, the extent of socialising and so forth. And it was at that point then, I think, that the government might have acted uh, might have might have acted quicker, but to say that the lockdown should have been continued, as lots of people are are suggesting now, seems to me to be the application of uh, of, of of hindsight. That is kind of not reasonable. Paul, just looking ahead, then. Um you mentioned, you know, that obviously the, the the recurring fear here is always that the that the health system is overwhelmed and that people can't can't receive the treatment that that they need. How 
imminent or real is that danger over the next two, three or or four weeks? Or can we tell that at all? But, well, by way of perspective, let me say that on this day uh, last year, uh, we set a new record for trolleys of 760 people waiting for admission to hospital, uh, one which was repeated the following day. We were nowhere near that, actually. Um, obviously, every winter is a crisis in the Irish Health Service. And so this is no different. This is a crisis plus a lockdown to prevent a bigger crisis. Um, my own feeling is um, Christmas is over. The kind of hibernation period that January is, is set in anyway, uh, added to the lockdown. Um, I think we will we, we'll probably get through it as usual by the skin of our teeth, uh, as, as is the case most winters. Um, there are some straws in the wind. You know, the number of contacts per case is, is, is almost halved. Um, so what I'm hearing from doctors is that, they're, that they have been coping. Um, when we talk about ICU beds, um, I think it's only a minority of, of um, very seriously ill patients who have um, need the full panoply of, of intensive care and uh, often what's called high dependency. You know, uh, we're talking about the difference between single organ failure and multi-organ failure. I know this is getting a bit technical, but nobody wants to be very seriously ill with this disease, but it does um, have implications for the staff ratios and so on. Um, obviously, um, the fact that there's so much virus, uh, virus out there is knocking out a lot of staff, not just uh, through uh, infection, but more more pertinently through being uh, having to isolate because they're because they're uh, contacts um, and that effect should hopefully start to to lift and increase the ability of the health service to to cope um, and then um, we will have to sit it out uh, uh, you know then we'll, we'll have to make some pretty hard decisions towards the end of the month about what and how to reopen I, I do think based on my reading of the figures you know, in terms of schools, which is really important. I know it's very important in my house because uh, schools were supposed to be back today and they're not. Um, and I've heard nothing from any school, uh, any of my ch children's school about um, Zoom lessons or anything like that so far, uh, which is disappointing. Um, the uh, There is a case for perhaps treating primary school children for different from secondary um, because of the lower rates of transmission. It is complicated because it's not just about what happens at school, which is a a safer environment, but it's also about mixing on the way to school and after school and things like that. But um, when things improve, perhaps, uh, you know, there might be a graduated reopening rather than a, let's keep the schools closed for a very long time as we did last spring. Pat, what are uh, your contacts in government um, saying about schools? Because obviously if, if things go beyond the end of the, the month, which they're already going to go to the end of the month, if we go into February, you have the appalling vista, I'd imagine, for Norma Foley in particular, of a second year of crisis around the Leaving Cert, for example. Yeah, Michael Martin said yesterday that it's the intention that the Leaving Cert go ahead. But of course, it's the intention that it goes ahead until such time as it uh, as it doesn't go ahead. I think it's a massive blow politically to the government to have to uh, to close the schools. And there was significant resistance to it right up until the point of the decision. And partly that's because opening the schools in September in the face of some opposition, let us not forget, and then keeping them open during the second lockdown, I think conveyed the, the impression to an awful lot of people that the government actually knew what it was doing and was managing proactively the uh, the pandemic. Having to close them now, I think, dispels that sort of image quite a lot and conveys perhaps the more 
the more accurate picture of a government that is simply reacting to the numbers of the virus uh, that it that it sees on a daily basis. So I actually think that the closing of the schools, although inevitable uh, at this stage, is politically highly damaging. And I think that there is an awareness of that in government from my conversations with people in and around government. And I think they will want to get them open as soon as uh, as soon as possible. But of course, as we all know, it's a lot easier to close. As, and as last year shows us, it's a lot easier to close them uh, than it is to open them. One thing I will say, though, uh, about it is that I think from not just a political point of view, but from, uh, you know, a health point of view in terms of the mental mental health of uh, of students and as Paul would be aware and I am too of their parents <laughs> who have been went through several months of homeschooling last year and are now faced with this dread prospect uh, once again I think there's a much greater awareness of those sort of costs to keeping the schools closed, particularly on the most, uh, you know, the most vulnerable uh, students, those uh, with special needs, but also those who don't have the sort of ready access to homeschooling facilities uh, as, as the most fortunate students might have. And I think there is an acute awareness of that in um, uh of that in government. That having been said, the only way the schools would get opened is if the numbers tumble fairly uh, precipitately in uh, over the coming weeks and just nobody knows if that's going to happen or not. Yeah, indeed. And the other very important part of this, of course, is the is the teachers and the teachers unions themselves and whether they think that their members can safely can safely return to work and there's all kinds of questions there. Listen, a, a, a last thought to you, Kevin. Um, my reading of your research is that unlike some other countries, particularly the United States, obviously, that the, the pandemic has not become a point of kind of political polarisation, or at least there isn't a political binary out of it in the same way as there has been in some other countries. There's a certain amount, fairly substantial amount of consensus. Is, is, is that fair? And if that's the case, is that likely to continue as we drag on in the, as, as Paul said, a very tired state that we're in with this thing now? Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly at the start of the pandemic, we had that kind of rally around the flag effect where lots of governments, not least our own uh, in Fine Gael, actually um, had this massive uh, increase in support. That that actually hasn't subsided that much in most countries. You know, in Germany, the the the, the CDU are still up, but where they were in, in Italy, the Cinque Stella and the Partito Democratico haven't really changed since their uh you know, their support levels haven't really changed since March. Obviously, in the US and the UK, uh, it, it, it damaged effectively the, the governments. Uh, and I think some of that is a function of at least perception of the competence of the government of managing the situation. Um, it certainly realigned and facilitated the the realignment of Irish politics in that Fine Gael versus Sinn Féin dynamic. I don't know if anyone peruses social media, but on any given day, one or the other is is regularly trending without any sort of context whatsoever. Um, and that dynamic in Irish politics is emerging. One uh, polling question I've asked uh, recently enough was whether people would prefer one of three options as a kind of forced choice between um, voting for a party that uh, wouldn't go into coalition with Sinn Féin, wouldn't go into coalition uh, 
with uh, Fine Gael or whether they didn't really mind about whether their party went into coalition with either one or the other, just to try to understand the level of um, polarisation in Ireland in this respect and to what extent, you know, since the general election and obviously the pandemic, which has accelerated without it being a political issue. I mean, the, the opposition hasn't really opposed very much of any of the government's decisions, but we've emerged in this kind of polarised environment. But what the what the data suggested was that there was obviously quite a lot of opposition to Sinn Féin, particularly among older uh, voters. But when you got to the kind of under 35s, there was almost more polarisation there in terms of there was large numbers that opposed uh, coalitions with Fine Gael and, and, and equivalently uh, almost as large numbers that uh, opposed uh, coalition with Sinn Féin. But the interesting point was that among that youngest group, there was um, there was very little middle ground, really, um, which was quite which was quite interesting because perhaps that shows maybe where the development of Irish politics is um, in the future. And maybe that's one of the, the long-standing impacts of this pandemic. But who knows? You know, uh, uh, Fianna Fáil have uh, improved in their polling position since, uh, particularly since November. Um, and I think some of that is a function of a couple of missteps maybe by Leo Radker in that particular period of time and relative competence uh, on for Micheál Martin. Whether Micheál Martin will get any sort of rally in, in this latest wave I, I I don't know if that's going to happen but um, it'll be interesting to see look whether whether Fianna Fáil kind of emerge and kind of can redefine in this kind of hopefully final wave of the pandemic and uh, whether, whether that will kind of reassert the political system as it was you know a year ago um, and, and we might be in a, in, a, in a newer political system I guess. And that's exactly the kind of stuff which we plan to continue discussing over the course of the year. We'll leave it there, though, for today. Thanks to Kevin and thanks to Pat and Paul. Also, also to our producer, Declan Conlon. And if you would like to get in touch with us, we're delighted to hear from you. Just mail us at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.